You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so I, I want to invite you now to, to begin to receive exactly that. So uh, through the summer, we have been walking through books of the, as we typically as a church walk through books of the Bible, we've been walking through particular psalms or chapters in the psalms. That is, we will be this morning in the 35th Psalm, Psalm 35. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a device that would get you access to it, you'll find a paperback one in the, in the tray in front of you. In fact, we'd love to make that our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take it. If you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, please take that. Pass that along. Uh, you can't steal it. We're giving them away. And so we want you to join us. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. And you'll find about the middle of the Bible, the Psalms. There are 150 poems or prayers or literally songs that we are invited to uh, in, in many ways, sing, in many, in many ways, rehearse, recite, memorize, meditate upon, to contemplate deeply, and, and even incorporate into the way we think and describe the way we experience the life of faith. And so the, the Psalms are, are, in this sense, a, a poetic container for the experience of the life of faith. And so they teach us the language of what it means to live in a broken, fallen world where things are not right, and yet at the same time to live with a hope that there is a God who, who has who is committed and promised to restore all things, who has come to be with us and for us in Christ. And, and this is the language that we begin to use. So if you're not a Christian and you're in this place this morning, I'm so grateful for you here. Maybe, maybe you're not sure. You wouldn't call yourself a believer, but maybe you have questions. I'm really grateful for your, that you're here. In many ways, you're why we exist as a church. And so I'm grateful you're here. I want to welcome you. And one of the ways I want to welcome you is invite you into kind of eavesdropping into the, the language of what it means to trust that there is a God that, that is sovereign and good and holds all things together and is redeeming and reconciling them in Christ. And so I want to invite you to, to listen in. And so we'll read the 28 verses of the 35th Psalm, a, a psalm that was, uh, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, an imprecatory psalm. Now, that's an archaic word. No one uses it unless they're talking about imprecatory psalms. But literally to imprecate is to call down curses or to, or to call out negative and awful things on a person, right? And some of you are like, I know what that is. That's, that's not the word I used for it, right? But like to, to call down consequences on a person or, or toward a person that, that is believed to have wronged them. And so what we'll find here is a psalm of David, a, an archetype of a king who led uh, the, the greatest period of prosperity that God's people, Israel, had ever experienced. And so he's crying out as king, we find here in these 28 verses, that God would protect him, deliver him, and actually bring consequences to work an act of justice on his behalf. So let's begin to read that together. It'll take about four minutes for us to read through it, so don't be, uh, don't be surprised. If you kind of drift off, that's okay. Uh, but I, 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 we try to tell you this, if, if you kind of space out, I hope, you, like, I hope you go somewhere nice, right? I hope it's got palm trees and all that good stuff. But, but whenever you come back to the room, whenever, whenever there are words that grab your attention, that kind of bring you back into this room, I want you to maybe focus on what those things are and trust that it might be that the Holy Spirit is actually drawing your attention to something here. So as David cries out to God, let's listen in and join him. In verse 1, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul. 
I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like shaft before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long.
I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that my desire as we reflect upon these kinds of psalm is that, psalms is that you would get, and I mean this very clearly, good and mad. Good and mad. This is an invitation to experience righteous anger against evil and wickedness in the world. And so for many of you, maybe in this, right, this morning, being mad is not a problem for you. The, the rebuke for you isn't that you would just be angry, but that you would have an anger that is righteous, an anger that is marked by holiness and goodness and not just selfishness, or might even be categorized as what we describe in our house as being hangry. But maybe for the rest of you is that you would also, maybe that's against your disposition, being angry or being mad is, feels already alien. And, and, I, and I would commend you. I think you, you're probably a very uplifting and encouraging person. I'm grateful for you in my own life. And yet the rebuke to you is the same, that you would also experience righteous anger, that you would see things in the world with eyes that are righteous, and you would have a, a response like the very heart of God and his servant here, that God would intervene, that God would do something. So I want to walk through this psalm. It's 28 verses, quite, quite long. We'll, we'll kind of see how it's laid out, see how this is in many ways an artistic and poetic container for the experiences of the life of faith. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say it's a poetic container, that's true of all music, right? In many ways, all art, but in this case, as a song that's simply meant to be kind of rehearsed or sung, we, we assume that as King David wrote this, that there was probably some melody to it. At the very least, there was probably a rhythm to it that he could recite, he could go back to it. And so as such, it's kind of a container for the experience that maybe we would com commit to our own hearts in the life of faith. And it tells us kind of the language that we ought to be using, the, the language of what kind of life we're going to be experiencing. Well, that's the way songs work. They have a way of like giving us categories, even though they're, like, right, even though they're completely apart from words. They're, they're in many ways, are beyond description. I'll give you some examples of my own life. It's like uh, when I first met my wife, Shelby. She wasn't my wife then, obviously. I first met her. Uh, we lived long distance from one another. And, uh, and one of the ways that we kind of, I don't know, this was, this was just dates where we were. Everyone has this kind of different ways of coping with this. I would make her, uh, and I remember the first one, two, or three, I, pretty vividly, I would burn her CDs. Again, and if you're like, I don't know what that is, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a thumb drive that you, you make on a disc thing. It looks, yeah, it's like a record, uh, but not, right? There you go. And we, I would kind of burn CDs, uh, and I have a, as many as you could fit in, about 18 to 20 songs make a little mixtape, and I would give them to my wife. And even to this day, when, when, from those, like, if you're around and a song comes on the radio, I'll be like, that's from, like, that's from the first CD I burned you, right? That's from the third CD I burned you. I don't think she remembers them that way. I do. They were like containers. They were poetic containers for what we were experiencing. And they were, and they were meaningful. And, and, and I say poetic because they weren't perfect. They weren't perfectly analogous, right? I remember some Meaningful songs, like some of my favorites of, uh, you know, Steve Winwood, I think is like Valerie, like, Valerie, call on me. You get it? <laughs> At that time, my girlfriend's name was not Valerie, it was Shelby. So it didn't quite fit, right? 
And then it was the other way, like O'Sherry. You change a few letters around, it fits better, right? But think of it like, they don't fully and perfectly capture this, but, but they give you poetic categories, poetic containers that, that kind of express and, and in many ways like sum up and, and resonate even deeply with us the experience of life. And so also the Psalms, and think about it, just think about that. There are 150 of them, as if to say one of the most important things that, that the Bible gives us are these poetic categories to understand and express and experience the life of faith. And so there are places we can turn in the Psalms in joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. And then there are Psalms like this that, that are, are, are meant to grab our attention and teach us about the life of faith. Poetic containers for us to begin to experience and understand and express and even listen to what it means to live a life of faith. To live a life before the face of and in the presence of God. So what does this psalm teach us? Let's walk through it and see. One, one of the things that I think is underneath the surface of this is this, is like opposition is part of the life of faith. Now I'll say more about that toward the, time, uh, the conclusion of our time together, but opposition is a part of the life of faith. That is, a, one author puts it this way, I thought, the most, most righteous man or woman and the most righteous causes may expect to meet with many mighty and malicious enemies. So even the most righteous person in the most righteous cause can expect to experience malicious enemies. That is that part of life is experiencing opposition. Part of the life of faith, of, of having our eyes open to the character and nature of a God who created the universe and is now sustaining it and redeeming it. And while all of that is positive and amazing and a cause for thanksgiving, it, it means that we are not immune to the effects of sin. Sin, that is what we describe a rebellion against God. The very story of humanity from the beginning of the Bible to the end that, that ultimately one of our most natural inclinations is to want to be God, is to, to want to be against God and, and to think we know better. And, and that very nature in us is while often something we, we tend to like foster and try to, try to, in many ways, kind of like cultivate as opposed to, in this case, realize that it, it might put us at odds with God himself. But experiencing God's presence in a sinful and broken fallen world means that you and I will experience opposition. But also, I think, underneath this cry of David for for help in the midst of opposition? Did you hear the list of how, this, how David experienced this opposition? Did you hear like the ways that he was falsely accused, the ways that he was misunderstood, the ways that people were going out of their way to celebrate against him? Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty profound. Have you ever had someone throw a party against you? Right? Have you? I mean, I'm, 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 some of you are like, yes, they didn't invite me. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, imagine how, how vivid that is. Like, have you ever had someone get together and throw a party again? Like, we're, we're, we're going to get a party together. And it's like, hey, tell me what, what, what's the occasion. We're going to celebrate the demise of fill in the blank. Right? And he has that happen. He experiences that kind of opposition. And yet, in the midst of that opposition, we also learn this from this song, that you can trust God with your life, even when, I might even add, especially when experiencing opposition. You're going to experience opposition. Now, for many of you, that's just a duh, right? Like even this morning, you're like, this is a terrible morning. That makes, like, that's the most obvious thing. 
And for many of you, that might be helpful because you're often shocked by difficulty in the world. But on the other hand, you might be on the other side of that coin encouraged to find out that even in the midst of that opposition, you can trust the Lord. There is a God who knows and hears. A God who knows and hears such that he inspired texts like this so that we would cry out to him in the midst of it. So, David, in the midst of opposition, entrusts his cause to God. So look at the very beginning. He starts to cry out to God, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Right? You hear the poetic container? Kind of the poetic repetition? The people in the next phrase, the people who are fighting against me, God, I want you to fight against them. The things that they're doing to me, God, turn the tables and do those things to them. And so I want to draw your attention to a couple things that that scholars help us understand about this text. That is that most likely, like many of the Psalms, we don't really know exactly what circumstance brought about this song. We don't know exactly. Now, I commend First and Second Samuel to you, several books of the Bible back, which will tell you the, the, the life, and, and, the life and, and experience of David, and, and he experiences all sorts of highs and lows. But we have no real clue which of these it, they are. But there's a few hints that say, that's why I said he was probably king, and they're kind of embedded in that first phrase. That word contend more literally means litigate. And not only litigate, but litigate in a way that you would think about a litigation between two, not just private parties, but two countries, two governments, let's say. And so the word here is, is more like cut a treaty, right? Cut an agreement. Litigate some sort of, right? Someone apparently is like litigating against him, literally contending against him. In this sense, kind of filing some sort of charges against him. And he's saying, all right, God, they're, they're filing and litigating against me. I want you to do the same. Now, that's kind of the language of a king, right? Like, you don't, you, maybe you think of yourself this way, but you don't regularly think as, like, your friendships with people around you as treaties, right? That would be interesting. I have, I have, a, I have a treaty with the people on, over here. Uh, like, that's, what? That's a, that's, a, that's a higher level term, isn't it? That's something the king or, or someone, a, a, an official would make. And so he's saying, he's using the language that a king would use. But the second thing is that he uses the language of warfare, fight against, and not just in, in a way that he, he means that you would kind of just like uh, pugilistically kind of have a, have a bout. He says, take hold of shield and buckler. Again, antiquated word, archaic word. You likely don't use that word buckler, right? And you got to love the ESV, this translation, for not making it clearer for us. That is, there's a shield that's kind of small. Think of like, a, think of like the shield of a, of, of, a, of a nimble and agile warrior, small and able to, to be moved around. And then a buckler, which would be like the shield of someone who is an infantry, right? It's the large, massive, think of a riot shield, something you can plant under the ground and hide behind. Well, again, that's the language of the military. And so that's the kind of thing that, Again, unless you might use that kind of language, right? Like, Lord, send tanks against my enemy. Well, you only send tanks against a certain kind of enemy. So do you hear the language of, of, of how we probably think that? This is from a time where David was king, and he was speaking about maybe some foreign adversary or, or a collection of foreign adversaries. We don't know when that happened. In fact, he, he had foreign adversaries regularly. But when he says, draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers... He's using military language. And so he's likely talking about uh, an international conflict, as it were. 
That is, the people of Israel with, with him as king and some other group of people, some other sovereign nation, as it were, some other tribe of people even. And he's using that kind of language of treaty and that language of warfare. That's important. We'll come back to it. But notice his ultimate goal. There's a theme that runs through this psalm, and it's found in that third verse in the second half, that phrase or that word. You see that word soul. Did you hear that more than once? So so listen to the theme that's under this lesson. Not only is he saying, God, contend for me, protect me, defend me, fight against those who are fighting against me. Ask yourself, why is it that he wants that to happen? And notice that his goal isn't just for his own well-being. It's something deeper. And he says, so that ultimately I would hear from you and hear you say in your defense, Right, God, as you contend for me, as you fight for me, ultimately, I want to hear you say to my soul. Now, that's a, that's a powerful word, isn't it? Right, that's, that's, more than, that's more than, like in this sense, my body. It's more than just my emotions. It's, this is the word the Old Testament uses for a kind of depths of being. Say to the depths of my very being. Right, if, if, you're, if you're from the 90s or the 2000s or, the, or, the, or even this decade, right, you would think of it as like your most authentic self, your real self. Say to my depths, the part of me no one knows about, I am your salvation. Ultimately, he wants God to vindicate him, to, to fight against his enemies so that he would hear in the fighting, in the defense, the God of the universe say, I've got you. It's going to be okay. Okay. So just listen to how that theme is recurring. He says, again, how the, he wants to experience this kind of deliverance in the depths of his soul. Verse 9, do you hear how ultimately he wants to be delivered so that, verse 9, he says, so what? My soul will rejoice in the Lord. Right? Just stop for a minute. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had a depth of longing that's kind of deeper than hunger, that's physical, deeper than the desire for relief of pain or discomfort that's physical? Deeper than simply something that's emotional, but something like in the depths of your being, a longing so deep, it's hard to put into words. Usually, you aren't able to put it into words until you don't feel it satisfied. Maybe that's the better way to ask it. Have you ever felt a dissatisfaction or discontentment that is soul deep? So now you get a picture of how the Psalms help us, give us a model for how we cry out to God. He isn't just crying for relief of a physical circumstance. He is doing that. And in that sense, we are too. We're meant to cry out to God. God, deliver me, right? God, bring me lunch, right? In many ways, that's that's why we pray before meals, right? If if that's your custom, is to say, thank God. Thank God I'm I'm going to be satisfied. But, But notice that those are simply windows into a deeper experience, Experience, he says in verse 9, ultimately, I want my soul. I want my soul, right? Think of it as like, is your stomach growling? Think of it as like, is your soul growling? I want my soul to be satisfied. I want, in verse 10, I want my bones to rejoice. That's what I want to experience. Verse 12, he does it again. You hear the theme, this recurring theme. They repay me evil for good. He starts to Tell God what it is that they've done wrong. I haven't done anything to deserve this thing. 
And what does he say? It causes him to feel. They repay me evil for good, such that what? Like his, his bank account is empty, such that, right? So, such that he is sad. No, what does he say again? My soul is bereft. Again, archaic word we don't usually use. But think of it as like, my, my very soul is desolate. It's bankrupt. It's empty. It's without resource. So, remember what I told you. Experiencing opposition and difficulty in this life is to be expected. And yet, what we find here is that you can actually trust God to give the depths of your soul what they really long for. In fact, in many ways, it teaches us to think that God alone can give you what often the world and other things promise you. In many ways, that's one of the, the greatest warnings I try to offer on a regular basis from where I'm standing here. It's like, I, I just know this week so many people or things in your life are going to promise you things, things you want, but they're going to promise you things that we believe God alone can deliver. <laughs> and you're going to look to those things, and they might give some fleeting sense of satisfaction, and they will leave you more desolate and bereft, as it were, than before you started. And so this psalmist invites us to profess deep and dark longings of despair and hopelessness, a desire for God to intervene, a desire for God to intervene and enact justice in the world. So here's another theme that I think you see here, because ultimately, notice in the next section after that, kind of if he's, if he's crying out to God, here's, here's what I want you to do, here's what they have done. Notice, beginning in verse 4, all the way to, you know, toward the middle, to the end, how you divide this, this psalm is different, different scholars do it different ways. They have different themes kind of running throughout them. But, but notice in verse 4, he starts to, to list things in a particular way. Poetic, maybe, but it's, it's even deeper than that. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed. You hear that? Let them be, let there. That, that phrase, let, is the, the translator's best way to kind of lay out what we have here is, a treaty, the language of a treaty, the language of the desires of, or in this sense, the commitments of a treaty, but also the consequences. Let the things that are built into this agreement come upon them because they've broken it. So think of many ways in crying out to God here in this psalm teaches us, I think, another lesson, a theme we see throughout, that the safest place to leave a righteous cause is with the righteous God. It really is. The righteous causes of the world, of justice, of, of mercy, of restoration, in many ways are far too high for us to engage in. In fact, when we do those things, when we, when we engage in trying to restore things, fix things, we often cause a bigger mess. I love if you read kind of ancient Greek literature. The, it was, it's as if to say kind of like the, the, the underlying joke of the, of the Athenian gods was that every time human beings would try to fix a problem, they created like more problems. That's hilarious. I mean, for Christians, that's what we describe as sin, right? Every time we try to fix sin, we just we make more. We just make a bigger mess. And so in this sense, like our best attempts at fixing things are just approximations. They're approximations of what we believe God alone can do. And so here's what I would tell you. It, does this mean, now just listen to the language. Notice, he doesn't in this psalm say that he's going to do anything. 
He didn't say, God protect me as I pick up the spear, as I grab the shield, as I start to enact these consequences for how I've been wrong. Did you hear that? There are, all, of the, all of the action verbs are ascribed to God. He doesn't want to, in this case, he doesn't want to do anything. He wants God to be the one that enacts justice for the way that he's been wronged. I believe that's because underneath here is a theme that I think the Bible teaches regularly that ultimately the safest place for a righteous cause is in the hands of a righteous God. We have a funny way of taking even righteous causes and trying to bring them about by unrighteous means. You ever done that? Ever seen it happen? Someone who was trying to do something for your own good and it was awful? Actually caused more harm? Right? Maybe a parent, family member, like trying to help you and making things worse, or maybe you've tried to help a family member and, and, and in the end just made it worse, caused more harm, think of, think of it this way. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to stop trying to approximate justice and doing good things for people. It doesn't mean that we're to stop trying to care for and be ministers of reconciliation, as the New Testament tells people in the life of faith. But it does say that there is a way, there's a way to take a righteous cause into your own hands and begin to implement it in unrighteous means. And that ought to be a reminder, an encouragement to deep humility that God alone can really fix what's broken. We can try, but in the end, our approximation is ultimately not to actually fix existentially what's broken at the soul level here. It's to simply point to the way that God alone does that. So this is meant to be an encouragement. Is there something you're trying to fix and it's not working? Is there something in the depths of your soul that is deeply restless? Is there something in the world that seems irreparably broken? And friend, we can trust that the safest place for the righteous cause of bringing restoration there is in God's hands. And in the same way that toward the end of this psalm, David turns to begin to express hope for the time when he knows that God will vindicate him. God will restore all things. God will put these things back together. So also, even as we approximate, right, even as we approximate our own repairs in the world, we're pointing to a God who doesn't heal and fix things approximately, but deeply and comprehensively. You can trust God with your life, even in opposition, and you can trust God with righteous causes. I think what you also see here is that you're encouraged to tell God whatever is on your heart. Uh, this will scare some of you, and there'll be an encouragement for the rest of you. Uh, for some of you that it scares, I imagine there's some, something in you that like, you're probably taught whenever you feel uh, fear or any sort of negative emotions, the way you do it is you stuff it, right? Just hide that. Put that, put that away. Put that away someplace where no one will find it, right? And, uh, and you usually say you know, to yourself, like, oh, this... I'm going to hide this. I'm going to put this away. When everyone who loves you is going like, whoa, clearly try to bury that one, right? When you take explosives and you bury them, it doesn't make them disappear. They become landmines, right? So for some of this, it might make feel uncomfortable. Like we are called to express what we genuinely feel and call out to God, to, to profess these things to God. The way I would say it this way, I think you heard me say this a couple weeks ago, is like it serves no purpose to, to not tell God something that God already knows, Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that the, like, right, the thing that bothers you, the thing that hurt you, the thing that harmed you, God was there when it happened. 
And so to, to pretend as though you don't have anger against someone who wronged you, to pretend as though you don't have hurt or, or dissatisfaction or despair is, is in many ways silly, right? It's kind, of a, it's kind of like a child coming up to a parent like with, with very obviously something hidden behind their back, right? Like, all right, I'm fine, nothing to see here. And, and what's the first, or even right now, like what's the thing that's, you don't see anything up here. Your focus is drawn to what does he have behind his back? And so think of like, it, there's no purpose. There's no purpose in trying to hide from God that which he already knows. Now this, that ought to like sound familiar to you. Because after all, that's one of the first stories of, of humanity, isn't it? That when people rebelled against God, what was their first thing? Like, I know what we'll do. We'll make, we'll make clothing to cover our nakedness with leaves, right? Which is silly, right? Like, hey, we've, we've wronged God. We've wronged the, om, the omniscient, om, om, omnipotent God of the universe. What should we do to protect ourselves? Let's get some fig leaves. There's no way he'll get through that, right? There's no way he'll see through that. And yet, that's, that's the nature of humanity, isn't it? That, that we often think we can hide or we can take that which is real and true and, and keep it a secret. And so we're encouraged here to... Tell God whatever's on your heart. And we've seen this over the last couple of weeks. It may be foolish. It probably, most certainly is foolish. And yet God, as a merciful father, isn't offended, isn't taken off guard by that. Instead, God meets us in that. I mean, we don't like it when we're misunderstood, but God has more grace than you can imagine. It doesn't seem to bother God when he's misunderstood. In fact, that's where he starts. God moves towards us in that. And so you're encouraged. Tell God whatever's on your heart. There is a God who listens. There is a God who knows. There is a God you can trust with these things. And then, probably the last theme here, and you see this as he starts to kind of allude to all the things that have happened to him, the way that he was being a good friend to these people. Did you see that starting in verse 15 on? They're mocking me. They want to destroy me. God, I want you to go against them, but, but the reason is because when they were sick in verse, like for example, when they were sick in verse 13, I, I went to care for them. Some awful things are a part of life under the sun. That's language from the book of Ecclesiastes in a fallen world. We live in a broken, fallen world. Now, this, I said this, again, this might be one of the, for many of you, it's like, duh, thank you. Awful things happen. Thanks for that. But I am convinced one of, the, one of the most common responses to when we experience tragedy or loss is shock. It really, we are shocked. And I've shared this with many of you over the last couple of years. My, I, I want to have a new commitment. We sing, right, about God's amazing grace. But functionally, most of the time, the other six days of the week, I sing amazing sin. I really am shocked. I really am in awe when bad things happen. Like when, when awful things happen, I'm really, I can't believe this. As though there's like no track record for awful things happening in history. I really, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, this may seem like a duh thing, but for many of us, you might be with me, is like one of the first responses to awful things happen, or awful things happening is shock and disbelief. And our most common response to good things happen, good things happening, experiencing God's grace, is entitlement. Right? Bad things happen, and we're like, I can't believe that happened. 
God is gracious to us, merciful to us, things turn out well, and we're like, exactly. I deserve that. And notice that the miracle of God's grace is that, especially if you just read the Bible, one after another, you think like, these people are really bad. At a certain point, God's going to give up on them. And the most common thread through this entire Bible, the whole story, is the repetitive nature of sin and destruction and the equally repetitive nature of God's grace. And we tend to be shocked by one and not the other. We tend to be blown away when awful things happen in the world, and we're just entitled when God gives us forgiveness and grace. So notice that the psalmist here helps us to kind of snap out of that, to begin to think a little bit differently. It doesn't mean, again here, it doesn't mean that when awful things happen, you don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't ache deeply. Again, he shared that. It doesn't mean that you don't feel hurt in your bones, emptiness and dissatisfaction in the depths of your soul. It just means that in many ways we expect that to happen. And not like a cynic expecting awful things all the time, but, but instead knowing that this is what sin does. This is what happens when people try to play God. So, we kind of walk through the themes of this. It ends on the language of hope. Verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness, do you hear that as if to say, let those people who, don't, who aren't throwing a party against me, right? let, let the people who would come to the party for, for my vindication, let them ultimately shout for joy and be glad. And let them say, not again, David is awesome. What does he say? Let them say, great is the Lord. The Lord delights in the welfare of his servant. The Lord doesn't abandon his people. And then what does he say is going to happen? Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So listen to these themes. There's brokenness in the world, and we can trust God in the midst of opposition. There are awful things that happen, and yet we are encouraged and expected even to tell God, to speak to God about it. God already knows. In many ways, he's waiting for you to say something. He's waiting for you to meet with him so that ultimately a deeper, greater joy, a larger, more powerful glory will be present. Evidently greater kind of a glory than just being vindicated or winning the fight. So, think about these kind of themes that run through this, the, the, the turning points that exist. And I think you'll, you'll find there's, in the, in the life of faith, you're, you're posed with some questions and you're left wondering what the answers might be. So let's kind of, for the, let's say the last half of our time here, let's, let's run through the language of the treaty and then how that might help us understand and experience joy and hope in the midst of opposition in the life of faith. And to do that, I want you to, to, to take you back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15. Now, you don't have to follow me there necessarily. If, if, don't be afraid of the table of contents. You can Google it. But I, I'm going to skim through it for just a moment because it tells us something that I think gives us a window into what this psalm is like. David the king is citing in the language of a treaty the language, and we would say, is the language of a covenant. That is a, a promise that's exchanged between two parties. The, the word we more op, uh, often use is the language of contract, right? Some sort of binding agreement that there are, some, in some way, shape, or form, there are consequences to when, when you break that contract. The language of the Bible is the language of covenant or the promises of God. And what we find here is one of the first most profound 
covenants or promises that God gives to his people. And you find it in Genesis chapter 15. Now remember in, in that psalm we just read, do you remember, remember how David was like listing off the consequences that he wishes would happen to them? I wish they would be confused. I wish they would be disoriented, right? I wish they would, be, I wish they would have destruction. I wish they would be defeated. I wish, right? Did you hear those? Now we might think that's just a cry for vengeance, but it's not. What we find here is that David is using the language of promise. That is, that in the Bible, whenever, whenever there were promises made, the, the terms and the consequences were laid out. And what we find here is one of the first one. If you have an ESV, you'll see even the caption for chapter 15 is what? God's covenant with Abram. And so, verse 1, after these things, this is Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Abram. Now, again, this language is going to sound almost exactly like the psalm that we just sang. Or that we just kind of, we didn't sing it. Maybe someone should write that. We'll sing it. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Hear that entitlement? <laughs> what will you give me for I continue childless? Why does he mention that? Because because God had promised three chapters earlier that he was going to bless Abram in such a way that that, that blessing would multiply to the nations. Right? It's a picture of God's blessing that's never for us or for our own sake. God only ever blesses to, to multiply blessing. But he, he hasn't received that. He said he's getting old, beyond, well beyond his uh, childbearing years, he and his wife. And, and so he's like, he says in the verse 3, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household to be my heir. Now listen how God responds, responds to him in this vision. Verse 4, and, and behold, the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Speaking of a member of his household. Like, look, is this, the, is this you know, you said you were going to give me an heir. Is it going to be this guy that I've hired? Like, no, no, this is not your heir. Uh, he says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. This son does not exist, mind you. And he brought him, Abram, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so, or thus, in this way shall your offspring be. It says that Abram believed the Lord. And by trusting in the Lord, did you hear what happens? He's, it was counted to him as righteousness. It's like he, he received all the benefits of the promise just by trusting in it. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then, then listen to what happens. Now this, this is where we get into the language of, of covenants in the ancient Near East in verse 8. He said, O Lord, how God, or, or Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all, and then he cut them in half. Now you'll see this in other ancient Near Eastern tradition. It's, in this, in this, it's built into the promise that you will see the consequences of breaking the promise. And for the, for in, you see this other, other ancient Near Eastern treaties that they would sacrifice these animals and cut them in half. And they would separate them in half. And then the two people, bound by their oath or their covenant, would walk through it. And it was as if to say, if you break this covenant, this is what you will look like. If you break this covenant or break this promise in half, you're going to be like this animal that's been cut in half. But skip to what we would expect. Skip down to where this is where the people in the covenant would walk through to keep the covenant. Skip down to verse 17. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Think a miraculous fire, right? We see, this, is, this is kind of a thing. God, God shows up in this miraculous way, and, and look what happened. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch did what? It passed between the pieces. So back to Psalm 35. Do you remember all those consequences that David was wishing for? Saying, I hope these awful things happen to these people because they've broken the commitment. The consequences, after all, were built into the promise. You know this, right? Have you ever had a pinky promise? It's as if to say, if you break this promise, you will lose your pinky, right? That's what, on my playground, that's what it was. I don't know what it was for you. Why else would you do it? As if to say, like, you break this promise, I break your pinky. Now, in the history of pinky promises, I've never actually met anyone who broke a pinky. I'd love to hear that. That sounds crazy. But it's as if the threat was built into the promise, The consequences are built into the promise. If you break this promise, this is what will happen to you. This is what ought to happen to you, David says in Psalm 35. You broke this treaty. You broke this promise. And so, therefore, I want God to come and enact justice. And so, if you go all the way back kind of the history of these promises that God makes, you would expect Abram and God to walk through these broken pieces, to see the consequences. But look what happens in this promise. The miraculous presence of God walks through the consequences, not Abram. And you're meant to see something beautiful here. That promises with God are kept by God. Even when we, especially when we break our end of it, God absorbs the consequences. God absorbs it. So when David is calling out in Psalm 35, for these consequences to be heaped up, they're not vindication. They're, excuse me, they're not vengeance, right? He's not being vindictive. He's not saying, I hope these awful things. He's simply saying, God, you were there when this treaty was formed. Come and enact justice for this person that broke it. And the opposition that he receives, he calls out to God to come and fix it. Now, let's get to John chapter 15. You'll see the last little piece. We'll connect the dots. If Genesis 15 gives us a picture of the beginning of the kind of promises that God keeps, then in many ways, John chapter 15, you'll remember us quoting this uh, in our journey as a, a, book, as a, as a, as a church through the, the book of John. You'll see here a picture. You'll see here a, a beautiful image of what God has done. You'll see something that we can expect living in light of God's promise. And it begins in verse 18. And again, it should remind you of Psalm 35, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Do you hear the language of Psalm 35? The language of being falsely hated? The language of being hated for things that that you don't deserve? Notice here, Jesus says that's exactly what 
It is like living in a broken, fallen world. In many ways, that's how you know you can trust me because I'm not denying these things. I'm not acting as though they don't exist. But look at verse 25. But this word, or excuse me, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Do you read that phrase? He quotes, they hated me without cause. Anyone want to guess where that comes from in the Bible? Psalm 35. Connect the dots of God's promise to be for his people. The experience of opposition in the world because we are his people. And Jesus saying that's exactly what you should expect. It's a radical reversal. I love the language of the psalm here. Did you hear where it said, like, they're going to dig a pit and I hope they fall into it? I loved it. Uh, what was it? A few weeks ago, Nathan walked through it. This phrase is throughout the psalms and throughout the Old Testament, like Wiley Coyote, right? Digging a pit that he falls into. You're meant to laugh. You're meant to think that's absurd. What a strange and crazy reversal. And yet, to think that's exactly the kind of thing that God would do. That's exactly how God would relate to his people. Instead of making them bear the punishment for the disobedience, of them not keeping their promise, what does God do? He goes through the middle and bears it for us. That's what we celebrate in the cross. That's what we celebrate at the empty tomb. Everything that David was praying for was answered at the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, just just for a minute as we rehearse this and think on it, on a regular basis, like verse 3, we remind each other that God says to us, I am your salvation. It's going to be okay. I've got you. And the way you'll know it's okay is that I have absorbed the consequences that that your sin rightly deserved. Right? I walked through the pain and the suffering so that you won't have to. And I did so in an ironic way, kind of like Wiley Coyote falling in his own pit. You can imagine the devil sitting out and going like, here's I know how we'll stop Jesus. We'll kill him right? Like, what tool will we use against Jesus? We will, and I'll tell you what, we'll do it. We're going to do it very publicly, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, I think we can stop him by killing him. And what is it that we celebrate every Easter and every Lord's Day since? That in an ironic reversal, Jesus took the weapons against him, namely death, and put death to death by death. It's as if the enemy laid out a pit for Jesus to fall in and the laughter and the celebration, the joy, the vindication that we now experience in Christ is that the worst thing, I mean, just the worst thing that could happen to you is a joke. It's a comma in the story. The worst possible fear that you have, namely that your life will come to an end, is now something, we decorate our church buildings with it. Again, it's as if you were to like, dig pits, to laugh at, the, at Wiley Coyote. And all the things, Jesus says here in John 15, all the things that were coming against him and those in him are simply a part of the grand story. So while there is pain and suffering in the world, there's pain and suffering in our neighborhoods and our families, that pain and suffering, the psalmist tells us, we can trust in the hands of a God who keeps his promise. Jesus quotes and fulfills every bit of this psalm. Did you hear the part where where the psalmist prayed for the angel of the Lord? That's the reason Psalm 35 is where it is. The only two times that the phrase angel of the Lord show up in the psalms is in Psalm 34 and Psalm 35, so they put them together. But did you hear what he's saying? He's like, God, send a champion. 
You hear that, that language of, of warfare? Send your champion to come vindicate me. Oh, thanks be to God. God has interposed the champion of his people, and his name is Jesus. Jesus quotes and fulfills this very psalm. So what are we, what are we to do in response? Colossians 2 says it this way. You who were dread in your, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made alive together with him, having forgiven all your, all your trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen for the language of the psalm. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friend, remember the world hated Jesus first and they hated him without cause. The purpose and theme of this psalm is transformed in the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus. This king prayed for deliverance from the hatred of his enemies. Just like Jesus prayed for deliverance from this cup in the garden. But ultimately, while this king prayed for deliverance from hatred, Jesus fell under that hatred in his own death. While this king prayed that curses would come on his enemy, Jesus invoked all of the curses that the promise of God demanded so that all of his people would know freedom, love, and not hatred. Jesus went, underwent human hatred to remove the curses that were hanging over you and me because of sin. In other words, the death of Jesus was a consequence of human hatred similar to the theme of this psalm. And yet, the death of Jesus became the act by which a new treaty, think new covenant, was forged between God and his people. It wasn't a treaty between nation states and the world, but instead it was a treaty, a promise, a covenant made possible, for, made possible by Jesus walking through and being broken and split apart, that we would be invited into that promise and into that kingdom. Jesus died under human hatred, just like the psalmist, to forge a new treaty, a new, a new covenant between God and sinners that welcomes them into his kingdom. Friend, you can sing this psalm. You can cry out to God for help because we know that all of these promises given to us are given to us freely in Jesus. I'll end with this. The psalmist cries out because he thinks that he was hated without cause. It's a picture of what Jesus would experience, but it's also a picture of grace. The hate of Jesus is without cause. He was perfectly innocent. But so is his love. The hate of Jesus was without cause. But his love and grace to you and me was also without cause. It was undeserved, completely unearned, and yet freely given. Such that we, we find here at the end of Psalm 35, have cause to celebrate. Not because there's no lack of opposition, there certainly is. But because there is one who came, a king who forged a new covenant between God and his people in which the opposition was absorbed, the hatred was taken on, so that now all we have when we look to him is life. Oh, how I wish this would be a mixtape. 
Oh, how I wish this would be a a poetic container for your experience in this life and the life to come. How I wish we would burn CDs for one another that reminisce and celebrate all the ways that when we cry out to God for for vindication and, and deliverance, it doesn't come when we want it and how we want it, but it always comes when we need it, and it comes through the person and work of Jesus how every single one of our promises, all the promises, all of our desires are satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus in which the scheming devil fell into his own pit and Jesus put death to death for you and for me. Let's look to him and celebrate that together by praying. Let's pray with one another. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you are, are good to us. You, you fulfill your promises to be with us and for us. Uh, God, I confess even as, as I, I, I try to plumb the depths in our time together of the, the, the promises that you've given to King David and fulfilled for us in Jesus, God, I, I confess my own feeble words are, aren't, aren't adequate. They're not satisfactory to communicate the beauty and, and majesty of what you've done for us. So Holy Spirit, would you now come and intervene? For those of us in this room, maybe if there's some here that they wouldn't call themselves a Christian, maybe they wouldn't call themselves a believer, even now, would you begin to, to stir in their imagination? They might consider the possibility that the story of their own existence is actually the story of God drawing them back, of repairing all things, starting with the, our own sinfulness and brokenness and offering us healing and welcome, restoring us, taking the righteous punishment that we deserve so that now we're free to experience grace. The enemy has been silenced. He's been shamed publicly. Might we receive that by faith? Maybe for, le- for the rest of us, uh, maybe we know this, we've heard this, but the truth is that we are just charmed by lesser things. There are other stories that have captivated our hearts. There are other songs we hum and sing. I pray that even in the depths of our own soul, in our very bones, as the psalmist says, we will begin to experience renewing grace. Like, like he prayed in the third verse, Lord, we want to hear you cry out to us, it's okay. I am your salvation. Might we receive that finished work, that free gift that was unmerited. In the same way that the hatred toward Jesus was unmerited, so also is the grace and free gift of of your mercy and welcome. Allow us to receive it now and respond just like the psalmist in praising all the day long, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of tears, Lord. Might we experience a renewing grace even now, in Jesus' name, amen.